0: Welcome to the Rise Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins and once again I am here with Mark Pringle. Hi Barney. And Jasper Mirison Bowie. Hello Barney. And in this episode we are joined by the great Nelson George. Hi Nelson.
1: Hey how's it going guys? Nice to meet you.
0: Nice to meet you. <laughs>
2: great to meet you.
0: Nelson joins us from his native Brooklyn, where he spent most of his career as a writer and filmmaker and the author of several great books like his Motown history, Where Did Our Love Go?, 1988: The Death of Rhythm and Blues, and a recent collection of pieces entitled The Nelson George Mixtape Volume 1, which will... Hopefully, talk about a little later. Nelson, I first read you, I'm sure, in the pages of Billboard, (laughs) where you were an editor, I think, for most of the 80s. And I sort of instantly responded to your writing style and your take on music. Tell us how you became smitten with music in the first place.
1: Well, it goes back to my mother. I mean, I always say my mother was a soul girl. (laughs) Some of my favorite memories. Of uh, my childhood, or Saturday night, you know, house parties. She had a big Motorola hi fi set, the big ones that would, you know, look like furniture. They were wood, cat wood, big speakers on the side. And when I got old enough, I could look over the edge and see the records. And they had those, you know, 45s on the record changer. Mm-hmm. And they would plop down. Yeah. And the little arm would come over. And um, so I was fascinated with that, obviously, as a kid. And what I remember very vividly is I think that some of our first, my first lessons in geography kind of came from those records because I would look at the 45s and, and the Motown logo, they had a little star that said Detroit on it. The Stacks records were kind of a pale blue, I remember, and they would say um, Memphis Sound or whatever. Philadelphia, Chicago, they were all, all, you know, so many of these great records, Curtis Mayfield and so forth, came out of these different cities. And so I remember sort of like, oh, that's Detroit. It's somewhere over here, and the music comes from there. <laughs> so so that was my, you know, that was kind of my introduction to that world. And my mother loved Otis Redding, loved David Ruffin and The Temptations. She really liked the strong voice male singers. She loved Aretha, Gladys Knight. So those were the, you know, the folks that I that was my introduction. And I'll
0: tell you what it
1: And then I think what happened is that as I got older, I continued looking at the back of album covers and realizing that these, you know, there were people who made these records and there were musicians who got together and made them. And many of them were made in New York, you know, like the stuff in Atlantic, Atlantic Records that were coming. So, so it was sort of a, a, a journey through the music, really. Uh, and then I, I would say I read two books when I guess I was in high school, college. I read Blues People by Leroy Jones and Mary, mm-hmm. later Mary Baraka. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I read A Mystery Train by Greo Marcus. Oh, yeah. And so the two of those things sort of opened me up to the possibilities of, oh, you could you know write about these things and and talk about them. And you know, because blues people obviously was very deep dive into blues and jazz. And what I remember about the Greom Marcus book. Was I'd never seen anybody, like there's a long section on Sly, when the same as chapters in there. And I'd never really read anybody write that much in depth about music that, that was sort of contemporary to me, you know? And I remember all of those records, and it was a really great essay. And then I read the Robert Johnson essay in that book, and I'd never heard of Robert Johnson before that. So that spent me backwards into a whole, so, you know, my college years I started, you know, buying blues albums and sort of educating myself on that whole tradition. You know, as a soul kid, then I learned about jazz through kind of mm-hmm. sort of Leroy Jones, sort of leads me to jazz, and then sort of Grill you know, Marcus led me to blues. So I would say that's sort of my foundation for why I got involved in writing my music.
0: And was it out of that that you, like, some sense came to you that you might want to write yourself? Can you remember that moment, or was it just a slow kind of percolation?
1: Uh, you know, I was buying Rolling Stone and I was buying The Village Voice. Funny, I actually can find. I had somewhere. I think it might even be in the Nelson George mixtape book. There's a rejection letter from Rolling Stone in there from
0: 1976. <laughs> you included
1: that. Version. Oh yeah, yeah. There's a number. Actually, there's a number of the rejection letters in the in the book because I felt that like was part of the. That's part of the journey, right?
0: Yes, for sure, for sure. So uh,
1: there's one dated 76, and I was probably uh, 19. And then there's another one from Robert Christgau from the voice that I got, which is probably 77 when I was 20. So I was already sort of trying my hand at trying to write record reviews, even you know then. I don't you know. I'll tell you, this is I just forgot about this. So I read a review in Rolling Stone of a Brothers Johnson album. I think it's Blam album that had Stomp on it, which was a big hit. Yeah. And I remember thinking the guy who wrote about the album, he kind of panned it, and I thought. Uh-huh. He didn't dance. I said, this guy doesn't dance. He doesn't go to house, you know, because if you, if you really went to, if this music was, I, my instinct was that he wrote about, he was writing about, you know, the Brothers Johnson like you were Bob Dylan. He was writing about the lyrical quality. And that's not why anybody bought a Brothers Johnson record. You know, if you listen to, especially Stomp, Stomp is one of these records that has one tempo and then has sort of another melody line that comes in later in the song. And that's if you dance, and you were kind of responding to that, and that had a big impact of how you moved, you know. So I, did, I felt like this guy was totally missing the point <laughs> of the record.
0: Sounds like he was, yeah,
1: yeah. Right, go. night, morning, and so that kind of led me. That's and that was that was really a spur, I think, for me to go. Well, I could do this because I understand this music on a level that some of these people who are getting paid to write about it don't. Cause they obviously, don't, they're not experiencing the music as it's intended to be consumed, I guess the best way to put it.
2: Vince Selesi was the only guy writing for Rolling Stone who had a clue about that sort of music at the time.
1: Oh, Vince is great. Yeah,
2: fantastic. But yeah. No, no one else had a clue about it. <laughs> yeah, Vince again.
1: was far and away, way ahead of his time, writing about disco and stuff yeah. like that. And then I, I found a couple of your other writers uh, Pablo Guzman, who wrote for yes. The Voice a lot, and also Bernie Gibbs. Yes. who He used to write for, like, he wrote for a lot of slicks as well, like um, Penthouse and Weed. Yeah, he yeah. was in that whole world.
2: He's one of our writers, Vernon. I tracked him down via Facebook about sort of like five, six years ago. And, you know, he's a long way away from that now. And I kind of nailed the guy down. It was so good to get him on board. You know, I I love his stuff. Absolutely. Oh, yeah,
1: Vernon Vernon was doing, you know, Who's Traveling to Africa with James Brown. Yeah. So they were kind of role models to me because they were the guys uh, in The Voice, which I was reading religiously by that time. You know, they were in there. They were writing about stuff that I cared about. Mm. Uh, So they were kind of my role models in that respect, you know, as, um, as people who were kind of, oh, these are guys, there are people who are kind of, doing this. And then I found out, I didn't know Vernon was black until much later. You know, I just mm-hmm. knew his name. I didn't know Pablo, you know, was Latino. I figured he was Latino, but I didn't uh, know his background as a poet. So those guys were, um, you know, Vince, those guys were the people who were like, okay, there's, there's yeah. a, a path, you know? Yeah,
0: exa- exactly. How did you get your foot in at the door at uh, Record World, which is where I think you started?
1: Well, it all starts really at Billboard as an intern.
0: Okay, I build uh, it that uh, way.
1: It goes back to uh, around the same time, 76, 77. I think Warner Brothers Records had made a big move into black music uh, in that time. And they did a big promotion uh, at the Beacon Theater called California Soul, where they were introducing a whole roster of artists. George Vinson performed during that week, Ashton Simpson, Al Jarreau, a lot of the artists who would become identified with the label. But I went to a show where it was at Graham Central Station with the headline. Mm-hmm. And Graham is playing, he's thumping his bass, and about five rows ahead of me, there's a guy, you know, sitting down, writing in a notepad. So I said, oh, rock critic. (laughs) So I literally followed him out of the Beacon Theater after the show, much to the consternation of his girlfriend, and said, listen, (laughs) you know, I'm in college, I have some clips, you know, and uh, he gave me his address and his number. And he actually read my clips. And his name was Robert, a.k.a. Rocky Ford. And he became my mentor. And he got me in. Uh, he introduced me to the guys at Billboard. So I was I was in college at that point. And I, I had some writing clips. So I uh, there were two areas where there was a lot of opportunity. That was disco and heavy metal. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, no one wanted to. It was a disco section, which had just kind of started up because of the disco craze, right? yeah. yeah. I remember I interviewed Evelyn Champagne King, I think it was my first piece. And then I interviewed Nile and Bernard from Chic.
2: Fantastic.
1: And now, you know, this is like, I'm thinking this is 77 or so, 78. I forget the exact year. But yeah, saw. you know, so, you know they, that was my point of entry. And I began doing pieces for the disco section. And then the uh, the talent editor, like he needed someone to interview, review heavy metal. <laughs> And he figured I didn't need a lot of background to go do that. So um, I remember I reviewed uh, Ted Nugent with ACDC opening. Wow. <laughs> and that's like, that's like, I mean, this is like prime primo Ted Nugent, young ACDC. Yeah, yeah. I reviewed uh, Hot Tuna, <laughs> um, uh, Fog Hat. Oh Jesus Christ! Lucky man. And, uh, and uh, oh, but, but, but one the, I did—I actually reviewed somewhere in the archives of Billboard—is the first performance of Van Halen in New York. Oh Fantastic. wow! Which they played. It was the it was it used to be the Academy of Music, then I think it was the Palladium by then, or it was the Academy of Music still. But it was on Fourteenth Street, and I was really—I mean, I remember being knocked out by that show. I remember that you know, mm. David Lee Roth doing the splits and Eddie Van Halen <laughs> shredding. So. So that was kind of my entry point in there in that, you know, there's two genres of music that no one, you know, heavy metal or hard rock and uh, disco, which were both kind of like, you know, yeah. in disrespect. So let the kid do it, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
3: yeah, exactly. It's interesting that you started writing about disco because in this interview we've got with you on the site where Paolo Hewitt talked to you in 89, you actually say that that you don't like house because it reminds you too much of disco, and and you hate disco. According to you, nineteen eighty nine. Do you still hate disco?
1: No, I don't actually. It's funny because <laughs> that, that's all smooth. That, but you know what I hated about disco was not Gamble Huff. It was sure. you know it was GenoSocio. Socio, and um, <laughs> what's those other things like? I like I didn't like Fly Robin Fly,
0: Silver Convention, Civic Convention.
1: So a lot of the stuff that. It, and also, like, things like the Richie family. I don't know if you remember that crap one. So, so Absolutely, so, yeah, yeah. So there was a lot of stuff that, that came out under the banner of disco. that I, I think that we look back now, the records that were really good, even the, like, you know, Disco Lady, I kind of like now, you oh. know, by Johnny Taylor. It was the more repetitive, four-on-the-floor, stereotypical disco records that began getting made that really offended me. Yeah, um, And I like house music a lot more, too, as well.
2: Sure. I mean, the, the, <laughs> nice. One thing that's interesting is that after uh, Comiskey Park and the disco sucks right. stuff, and the bottom fell out of the disco market remarkably rapidly, it went back underground and became much blacker and much funkier. So you listen to a lot of stuff made in the 80s, and it's fabulous. It's nice. really, really good dance music. But it was just for the Paradise Garage or places like that. You know, so it, was a, it, it all changed in that respect.
0: Well, you mentioned Evelyn Champagne King and Sheik, who, you know, of course, made extraordinary disco records. Right. I mean, Shame is just sort of a deathless masterpiece. Right. And, and, I mean, Chic really never put a foot wrong, did they? So, so uh, the piece that uh, Jasper referred to, the Paolo piece, is, is really interesting because it's basically apropos your book, The Death of Rhythm and Blues. Right. And I suppose I wanted to ask you, you know, 30 years later, wherever we're at now, you know, how do you look back on the central arguments of that book? Unfortunately,
1: unfortunately, uh, prophetic, unfortunately, because uh, R&B, as I knew it, you know, uh, is not really part of the mainstream of what young black America listens to. Or mix, I should even say, put it that way. There are some extraordinary artists, and I find you know uh, people all the time that I really like, but um, they're not on the radio. They're not in the center. They're not really in the center of the culture the way singers of quality used to be. And also, I think the songwriting. I mean, the generation that you know of the you know Gamble and Huffs and even you know M. Tume and Lucas. Burn, you know, the guys from Chic, Bernard, and, uh, and Nile. There were just so many really fine songwriters and arrangers. And that whole infrastructure of the culture is kind of gone. Or either the, guys, the kids who would do that now are either making trap records or they're in technology or they're doing something else. Yeah, yeah. And also the other thing about that book was that it was also about black retail, mm-hmm. the mom and pop stores. Mm. Those things are pretty much extinct. You know,
2: Yeah, I bought that book and Where Did Our Love Go when they, they came out in this country in paperback. And, you know, as a middle class, lefty, white guy, one assumes that integration is inherently a good thing. And you put this startling argument to me at that time that actually one of the worst things that happened economically and culturally to the African-American experience was desegregation and the middle classes moving out of the ghetto. And that's before
1: gentrification,
2: right? Yeah. So... The black concert business, black
1: radio, as we know it doesn't Mm -hmm. really exist. It got all brought up by conglomerates. The black retail experience. So all of these things that were, you know, we do think about the music and the musicians, but without the clubs, without the radio, Mm -hmm. without the retail reality. Hip-hop created its own way of doing things that was different from what came before. And it built on the foundation of the R&B world, but it became its own thing. Uh, And it evolved with the technology. And so I just feel like I, I was a little, sadly, you know, a little prophetic. And I, I don't really, no, I'm not, it's not something I'm really excited to say because I, I love that. And I don't think that it's been replicated so that, you know, I, if you ask a young woman today who her favorite, who makes the love songs, she's probably going to say Drake. Yeah. You know, and what's happened is it was auto Tune and some of the other techniques the line between singing and rapping, especially with someone like Drake, who's been very good at it, has disappeared <laughs> for, the, for, for a lot of the audience. So that instead of going to see Marvin Gaye or, you know, Al Greer, you fill in the blank, Teddy Pendergrass, Drake and some of the other artists in that space have filled that spot. And so that, you know, that means that the melodies, the, the, me- the melodic range of the music has been narrowed. That means that the ar- complexity of the arrangements is, uh, gone. I'll give you, I'll tell you one thing. I, before Bernie Warwell died, I, I interviewed him, you know, a couple of years before he passed. Mm-hmm. And he said something really, that really stuck with me. He said that, you know, with all the programs that kids have, they can all access the note E, <laughs> right? But because they don't have either connection to older musicians or any musical training, they have no idea that there's E sharp, E flat, that there's all these <laughs> different possibilities was in that tonal range. So that when he was playing with P Funk, he was experimenting all the time with with the sounds of certain mm-hmm. notes and creating on top of the funk, creating all these interesting sounds. And says so that's not happening in the music because the kids aren't really schooled yeah. enough in the in and just music. So I mean, it was, it was you know, so all of that has a you know. To your point, all that has a long-term effect, Barney, on, on what the culture is, you know?
0: Yeah, so. yeah. I, it's really I, interesting. I reviewed the book for The Wire, and I thought I'd revisit this. Fortunately, it is on Rock's Back Pages. And I say somewhere, I say, this is a book by a radical conservative. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in the sense that you know, you you were arguing so strongly for right. the the roots of the the traditions of black music, and you were worried that they were being diluted by the you know extraordinary success of someone like Michael Jackson. I don't know is, is that a, is that a fair label to pin on you at that time? <laughs> I,
1: I, it's 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 I would say that there's a there is a conservative thread, absolutely. But I mean, I wasn't against Michael, and I wasn't against no. that success. It's just a matter of it was can you sustain multiple multiple things at the same time? And because of the nature of the business and the business aspect of it, there was no one really tending to the roots or protecting some of the. Because I mean, I think one of the things that really strikes me in, uh, is the generational divide that happened at the time between hip hop and R and B, right? In retrospect, now, if you, if, you go, if you go see Ice Cube, there's a show actually coming out in L.A. Uh, in December where it has Al Green and Ice Cube on different stages. <laughs> right. So what you're finding is that the people, that generation, the LL who J's, anybody from that, that particular era of hip-hop, who all were directly connected to R&B mm-hmm. at the time, you know, generationally, but also kind of rejected some of its values at the time, now are now are embracing. I find the connectivity between the, the Snoop Dogg generation and the Al Green generation, the Iceberg Brothers generation, much tighter. They'll do shows together. They shout out each other. And now, because the break that's happened now is even more radical. When you look at what the what, what trap music represents sonically, and mm. even lyrically, that has almost is that hip hop. You know it, because lyrically and and, and, Milo- and what they do in terms of what, what's considered an acceptable vocal is so different from what that old school generation did. So you see these constant evolutions and breaks and changes. Sure, you know so uh, I do think there's a conservative thread to what I've written about. I definitely do. You know, it just feels like that that's something that I have in my my bone marrow
0: yeah yeah yeah
1: and i just can't can't get get rid of
0: even in the palo hewitt piece which is just to give the exact date of that it's like january 89 and you say at the end that's why rappers become so successful because they're the only guys who have even suggested the james brown wilson Pickett tradition so ironically even though hip-hop was perceived as a sort of upending of right. of, of tradition of course a lot of greats always sampled i mean you, you know i always think of the way rizzo sampled you know like southern soul stuff on wu-tang records you know
4: insane from the I'm the trigger I the swords, how you figure that you can even fuck with my,
0: there was a connection there that bypassed the very synthetic and kind of blanched soul of the 80s you know and mm-hmm. i'm not it's, i don't just mean michael jackson but a lot of the stuff that you were writing about in the death of rhythm and blues which you saw as a sort of hmm, almost like a betrayal of soul tradition
1: I mean, you know what happened is that there's a lot of records, and I know a lot of the guys who made these records because I was in New York and part of that, you know, around that scene. But you know, records by people like, you know, not to disparage him, but Freddie Jackson,
2: mm-hmm.
1: there's a whole kind of very polished. It's almost. It's interesting. One of the things that happened after Teddy Pendergrass died is, or is that it almost that that kind of vocal singing style mm-hmm. came out of vogue with whether it's the record companies or the public it's hard to tell which because everyone was kind of chasing this Michael Jackson dream so if you had a, a, a high tenor voice
2: mm-hmm.
1: you could get signed if you had a, a low tenor t- toward baritone or rougher texture mm-hmm. fewer and fewer of those people got signed you know any young singer who sang like that male just didn't get signed so they ended up in the church or, or, or wherever else so so that there was a there was definitely an aesthetic yeah, that, you know, happened.
2: I mean, I, I'd argue that the, the changes actually went further back, that, that it was the likes of Donny Hathaway who was starting to smooth out the black male vocal sound. And I'll also argue that, that there's been some, some revival. I'm not necessarily in those terms of the sound, but when I think of people like the Fugees and D'Angelo and all kinds of people, right now someone like Lizzo, you know, who actually, I think, uh i think lizzo's absolutely part of that r&b tradition but with a sonic different sonic palette because it's a different times and different technology sure. and, and a different audience you know sure sure
1: so i, no, I think there there're definitely glimmers of hope cuz i really like singing and uh i, I really not like autotune so I'm, I'm, <laughs> always, I'm always for any i'm always for people, anybody who can sing i yeah, really yeah. feel like that's that's I, it
3: you know i'd be really interested to hear where you feel jazz fits into this because obviously, you know, initially predominant form of popular music earlier on in the 20th century and then became really avant-garde, Miles Davis kind of exploring these different dimensions. And then there was this kind of conservatism where it's kind of atrophied a little bit. And now for me, at least there's, there's a lot of really great modern jazz, you know, contemporary jazz being made that is again, exploring different directions. When you think about someone like Kamasi Washington, or i mean robert glasper robert glasper yeah, absolutely yeah, definitely yeah. how do you feel that the jazz trajectory compares to the r&b one
1: well i i love i love I i call it the la school you know you get kamazi washington terrace yeah. martin i'm thinking about it i mean the whole that whole group of musicians who contributed to, to Pimper butterfly yes
3: as yes, well exactly.
1: as robert gasper who was doing on the east coast and, and uh jason moran i think there's really been an incredible um What's the right word? Upswing or exposure. Blue Note's doing a great job in terms of curating mm. that, I, I believe. Mm. So, yeah, I, I love it because these guys are like, we grew up on hip hop, but we understand miles.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And they have the training as well, as far as the yes. musicianship. And, and what you were saying was kind of lacking a little bit from, say, trap producers or whatever. Yeah, so there is that real rigorous skill being... Nurtured. Yeah, I
1: mean, I mean, I saw Mor- Moran. I I think glasper is also from Houston. I saw them do a show when I, I guess when they were first kind of emerging of you know maybe eight six or no more than that like eight seven eight years ago maybe where they were both at, at Town Hall. They just did a they did a a piano duet where they were both mm. you know just did dueling pianos like nice wow that was so great and yet yeah. yet, yet they can still go work with Most Def or yeah. whoever else. And I think that those guys have really revitalized the idea of jazz music for, for folks who are, you know, musically astute. It mm-hmm. may not be for everybody, sure. but it definitely has expanded the, the audience for that. Uh, you know, and I, I got to give Kendrick Lamar a lot of credit for it. that. That the Butterfly was really a, a, an epic Such a record, great record in so many different so ways. Good. And he definitely yeah. introduced, I don't think Kamazi Washington's records sell as much without the Pimple Butterfly exposure. Your know, Terrace Martin, all of that, that whole group—got a really got a boost. I mean, I've been living partly in L.A. for the last four years, and one of my favorite things is going out to um, different clubs in Los Angeles, where you see young music, young musicians playing in clubs and jamming and con- connecting with each other and having a sense of community. So I, I love that. And I think I, I actually think that that's been—it's something that Miles himself would have in, enjoyed because yeah, he was yeah. someone who very much believed in. You know, to get a new sound, to get a new band. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean Thundercat's another
3: one who's very oh, much and absolutely. This is, yeah, absolutely. You know where and it's fascinating as well because obviously his appreciation of history and going back. I mean, he had like Michael McDonald on right. his records, which is such a strange kind of confluence, but actually just works really well. I find that you know it's obvious that they care deeply about all kinds of histories and of and of, of backgrounds musically.
1: Well, you know what's weird about the Thundercat Michael McDonald and Kenny Loggins hookup? Yeah, is that you realize. It's just like this, this Dave Grohl thing that Evan was talking about where he talked about how he was influenced by Cameo and the Gap Band. Musicians listen to everything. Yeah, yeah. Their fans sometimes don't listen yeah. to everything. Yeah. But the musicians yeah. do, and almost every great musician has a pretty wide breadth of knowledge. And, and and often we're not even, as a listener, we're not even cognizant of, you know, what we're taking. Only if we're shocked, shocked that Nirvana listened to No, he's a <laughs> musician. He's a yeah. drummer. What's he going to listen to? <laughs>
2: It wasn't a good drumming. Yeah. I mean, one of the the worst things about the awful period, which we refer to as Britpop in this country, is that the musicians lost sight of that and referenced only one thing, which was they referenced the English bands of the 60s, while failing to recognise that the English band of the 60s were crazy about black music. So the Britpop guys just removed any remaining blackness in, in white rock and roll and turned it into a... A grooveless plod. You're talking about, about Oasis and Blur? And blur yeah, around? absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Let's not talk about Oasis. <laughs> okay, it. okay, okay. How about we don't. Talk- <laughs> Now, so I just want to go on a, on a very quick tangent here sure. because the featured writer on the homepage, well, obviously you're a featured writer, but the featured rocksback Pages contributor is a guy called Dan Nuger, who did a lot of reviewing for The Village Voice. And you had a, a column for uh, like five years. At the yeah. place, so I know how important The Voice has been to you. I said I wanted to ask whether you, I think you mentioned The Voice earlier, but would you have been reading um, The Village Voice in the early 70s? No, I probably, I probably
1: got turned on to it 75, 76 right. when I'm in high school, right? yeah. high school into college. Because
2: mm-hmm. when you yeah. start,
1: you know, I was one of those guys, I lived in Brooklyn, way out in the, the ass end of Brooklyn. But I would go with my friends into, you know, into the city to buy records and just hang out on a Saturday. And if we could sneak in to the Vanguard, uh, to the Village Gate, which was on Bleecker, mm-hmm. the bottom line. Uh, which was right, right nearby on, on Mercer. So uh, I was re- the voice was kind of my the listings page and the voice, and then what was being written about in the paper. I don't necessarily remember Dan's byline per se, but I do. You know, the voice was the gateway drug. Yeah, yeah, you know, absolutely.
0: Well, so this is quite a, a seminal little review he did of Springsteen at Max's Kansas City. Uh, oh, this it is, it this just- is before the bottom line shows yeah I think it is. I think it is don't quote me never yeah. quote me anything, <laughs> but it's it's just amusing because it starts it's a short review and it starts off. everybody grumbles about max's for some reason, but most of us keep climbing through the dark to the top of the stairs once or twice a week anyway and then he says at the end he compare interestingly he compares Springsteen to Van Morrison, and the <laughs> band's less self-conscious work. And he concludes, if he doesn't get lost under the attendant hype, Springsteen might even do something really amazing one of these days. And we're also featuring an interview he did with Arthur Lee and an interview he did for Circus with The Average White Band. I had to just had to ask you, given your love of funk, Nelson, what you thought of The Average White Band. Love
1: them. Love <laughs> yeah. them. Love them. I mean, I, yeah. I, I remember being in high school... And uh, pick, listen to pick up the pieces which was one of my mm-hmm. favorite jams, and then the second album, which is a, uh, is that cut the cake? Cut, cut, the, cut the, the cake. Album, you know, um, schoolboy crush. Yeah, schoolboy crush. Yeah. All those records that ended up being sampled by hip hop. Yeah, yeah, you know, no, I was a big fan of that band. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, uh, I, I, they were like. That's the thing about about um, black audiences. You know, whether it's the average white band or Tina Marie. If they felt that you were legitimately in there and really doing it, and had a feet, had soul yourself that you were connecting to, you were you accepted. They didn't really have. They played on bills with you know Cool in the Gang and yep. and all those kind of groups. So yeah, I love them.
0: should mention at this point the film you made, which I haven't been able to see because I'm not sure we can see it here, is Finding the Funk. Oh, it is that, that available? Uh, is I'm there, not sure if it is. Uh, I would love to know. Uh, it's t- on Amazon. So is it know. on Amazon?
1: Yeah. It, was, it originally was made for VH1, and then we did another version of it. We sold it somewhere else. What's on Amazon now is a longer version that has less music because obviously we we couldn't clear all the music ourselves. Right. It was a licensing deal we had, but there's more, it's actually more interviews. So, Mm uh, it's a trade off. And that's
3: narrated by Questlove, right?
1: Yes. That was when Questlove was beginning his journey. (laughs) I remember literally when we asked him, because one of the preconditions to getting him, getting it sold to VH1 was getting him as one of the, uh, narrators. Right, and uh, he remembered him telling he, you know, he really wanted to be more involved in doing documentaries and TV. So uh, he was very much down to do it. And now he's had his own documentary out.
0: That's tremendous. Yeah, that's Such great. Cool
3: really, really my him. him we'll, we'll be, absolutely. We, uh, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> Nelson one of, maybe one of the first pieces I ever read by you was about Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis that's that's mm. my memory so this is actually the perfect moment for me to ask Mark to tell us about the week's new audio interview
2: yeah it's a it's Terry Lewis interviewed by Stephen Daly in 92 uh, it's in two parts and what's weird is one part sounds complete sounds like it's a different person talking because Stephen Daly's micro-cassette machine is the, less, the least perfect thing I have ever come across. <laughs> but he, he's really interesting. Um, he talks about setting up their perspective label, producing Sounds of Blackness, which was a remarkable right. gospel hit hit at the time. He talks about what he expects from his acts, their work ethic, and um, he looks back at the time. No, they are not going to get back together again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he talks about attitude records as a kid, loving attitude records like Betty Wright and people like that, and how much that influenced their work with the likes of well Janet Jackson. Obviously, he talks about sustaining success and originality, race in the music business, their roles as producers. Let me see. We have we got a clip of actually. We'll play, first of all, a clip from Barnes' interview with Jimmy Jam, which is really interesting. And it's Jimmy Jam talking about his biggest influences. Let's have a listen to that, Jasper.
0: Probably
1: the Philadelphia song. Yeah, Game 1. Tom 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 Bell. 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 That's probably my biggest influence. Always like... Their type of thing, I always like chord, big major, seven chords. I've always liked really pretty melodic things. Yep. Terry's
2: always liked really funky, bottom, George Clinton, right. prominent right. from type right. things. It's, it's really. Yeah, really we like kind that. of try to combine it. Take
4: a walk down memory lane And see where the path might lead you Familiar things do change But in our mind
2: the second part, he talks about producing his own wife, Karen White, on mm. what Prince and Madonna do that sets them apart, on Johnny Gill. Now we're talking about singers who did refer back to earlier, about singers sure, who sure. referred back. Johnny Gill's a guy who you listen to him and you think you're listening to someone from the late 60s, early 70s. He's, yeah. he's, he's got that sort of voice. On appealing to more than one age group, which is interesting. Yeah. Uh, turning down established stars. We'll listen to a clip at the end where he talks about that, about how there's no point in them producing Lionel Richie or Michael Jackson, that they want to deal with new people. talks about Ralph President, New Edition, and about the enduring talents of Janet Jackson. This clip we're going to play is about the popularity of black music, how it's becomes this huge industry and massive thing. <laughs>
4: Uh, absolutely, I think R&B has always been uh, the major force in pop music, because the only... See, see it depends on how you define pop, and, and I think the intended definition of pop is popular, Right. okay, and if you look historically, black music has been the popular music, you know, and I would have to say that black music is popular right. at this point, because the biggest Artists to ever sell records in the world have been black artists,
0: right?
4: You know, Michael Jackson being the biggest, no one has outsold Michael Jackson per record, right? You know, Nelson,
2: Jerome and Lewis's producers, what do they mean to you? Well, I mean, number one, they're, they're amazing
1: guys, and their partnership is quite remarkable. Mm-hmm. And actually, it reminds me a little bit of Gamble and Huff in that. You know, Gamble is the articulate speaker. Huff doesn't say very much, mm-hmm. but Huff is the rhythm guy and a lot of the great piano arrangements. You know, Gamble writes most of the lyrics and gives that political edge to what they've done. The biggest difference is that Terry Lewis, who doesn't actually talk much in interviews usually, is actually one of the better lyric writers of the two. Mm-hmm. So that, that it's a little different than to get, but, but the fact that you have these two guys who have very different personalities very different public personas, mm-hmm. but managed to work together for now, I guess now 30 years with Jimmy and Terry. And, you know, to do a remarkable range of music. When I, I went on their their Spotify playlist one day, just let me see what's there. There were songs in there that I totally had forgotten mm-hmm. that they'd done. It didn't sound like stuff that I connected them with. So I think that their um, the range of what they've done is quite remarkable.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think Barney and I certainly have been massive fans forever. Uh, I mean, what's really interesting is their very first, production their very first production was a massive hit sos band just be because yeah, sure. you know which is just a fantastic record uh, for me i'm kind of like in 1985 around there like janet jackson's "Control" was just something which was just just such a huge record um, i love the way that they don't use sequences they use a drum machine but they hand play everything else and i think that gives their music a swing that so much program music simply that simply will never never have and also the way and they talk about, to some extent. They talk about this in this interview. Terry talks about this in the interview. Is this process of getting under the skin of the artists they're producing? And I've read this in other interviews. They they'll spend two weeks not doing any music at all, but just talking to the artists, finding out what who they are and what they're like. Sure. Um, and, and and he does talk in this interview about getting that personality. Exposing that personality of the artist and putting it into the, into the music, which I, I think is fantastic. I think that you know everyone
1: focuses on the Janet Records obviously because they were yeah. huge, but their relationship with Alexander O'Neill. Oh yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, it's yeah, yeah. just
1: amazing. Yeah. And uh, I think those, like for those first two albums they did with him, he you definitely feel this guy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in this. This is a this is that they wrote to fit to fit his personality, yeah. and that's some of my my favorite stuff. The stuff they did was, you know, was voiced to men. Yes. Yeah. You know, literally, can you stand the rain? Yeah. I mean, I knew those guys pretty well mm-hmm. at that time. And they were definitely uh, some guys who it rained on a lot. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I, I definitely like, oh, he, he got them. You know, they really yeah. got into those guys. There. Sunny days.
4: Everybody loves them. Tell me. Can you stand? He also
3: says, interesting, which kind of ties in what we were talking about earlier, he says at one point that a person who doesn't understand black people isn't going to understand black music because it's not just music, it's a way of life. And that ties in with earlier in the sense that when it becomes excessively commercial and it's no longer about a way of life, it's just about selling records, which is kind of what you're criticising in in, uh, Death of R&B, you get divorced from what makes it, I guess, authentic. And I think that is true also as a listener. If you don't understand... The background to it you can't understand the music
1: well you know i feel like I, I would just counter to say that and when i think about it the best songs that travel the longest are often the ones that are most most intimate that is mm. the contrived stuff stuff it feels contrived yeah and it may sell some records at a time but the enduring music is that is the most idiosyncratic in many ways it's funny because i mean i always think about lana richie's career and i think about dancing on the ceiling which is which was kind of like that was that was the end of his run, and <laughs> it felt like, oh, Lionel, you just went. I believe the, I believe when he wrote Easy that he was he lived Easy, and that was the feeling. I, <laughs> yeah, believed, yeah. I yeah. believe even Hello. <laughs> but when he did on the ceiling, I said, brother, you're going too
2: far. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and the audience so did funny. too. Yeah. The audience did too. Like, oh, that's it. Yeah. Well, I mean, you here. know, for those of us who grew up <laughs> loving the Commodores and Brick House yeah. and all that sort of stuff, I mean, for me, it was a sense of sinking, you know, my heart sinking as he kind of just basically sold out brutally. You know, he just became, he pushed and pushed, to become an absolutely colourless, popular singer. Well, you know, it's interesting ab- about him in that that journey because that that there was a lot of pressure
1: to be, you know, the once Michael set this kind of, you know, this this spot, mm-hmm. there was a great deal of pressure to to tr- how do I match those numbers? Sure, and I think that I think he definitely fell victim to that. But you know, it's interesting. I was looking back, I was doing some research on the early the mid '80s in terms of black artists crossing over,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that we always think about Michael and, you know, the big dance records of Prince and Purple Rain, but there was a whole world of ballads, whether it's James Ingram, obviously a lot of Richie, Whitney, that these big power ballads, Mm. and and in a way, the singers then began, the power of the voices carried the songs, but they weren't really encouraged or allowed to sing outside the box. There was very little of that, the riffing and the sort of runs that we associate with great black Mm -hmm. music.
2: But it was commercial. Yeah. yeah.
1: Jeffrey Osborne, I think, did a couple of little salads like
2: that. But um, particularly the women singers, it led to what we now know of as the television music, pop show yeah. stuff. You know, I mean, when you think Mariah Carey, Whitney Houston, and all that. Now, when you see a young black woman on a talent TV show, you know, Britain's Got Talent, whatever it is, that's who they're channeling. They never Or indeed her. a young white woman. Well, indeed a young white woman. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And and they don't sing the melody anymore. They're, they're massive lamentations melisma over sewing as barney yes yeah, yeah. it to me you know it's kind of poisons i mean i love ballads i love r&b ballads
1: but it's interesting that that that, that you're right that what, whatever those shows are it's that era of the 80s yeah there's the template for that and Absolutely. they do a lot of those songs in those shows yeah that's you know? right that's right it's fascinating
0: now so since you mentioned prince i uh, i'm just going to interject here that i actually uh met jimmy jam uh, I didn't talk to Terry, I don't think, but I went on that uh, 1999 tour for three days ah. in like this probably like February of of 83. And I got chatting with Jimmy and then I realized some years later that that was only about three dates before he and Terry flew <laughs> To uh, wherever the hell they went. I think they, L.A. They, well, no, like L.A. or Atlanta. It was, it was the LA, it was, yeah, LA they got go. stuck in Atlanta. Right. It was a blizzard. Right. They'd been doing Just Be Good to Me, and they couldn't get back yeah, to right. rejoin the Prince tour. And, and, of course, he fired them. Right. <laughs> and, I mean, talk about just an extraordinary, like, crossroads moment in someone's career. Because if he hadn't fired them, I mean, I don't know whether we'd have been talking... Well, who knows? Who knows what the Jarman Lewis? Story
1: well, I mean, then, he, he he might have got stuck in Prince Land. He might have locked them up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah. No, yeah. they had. They had already cut. Just be good to me by that point, I think, right. yeah. or about to. Well, I, I and that was. Well, I think they cut it on that on that right. uh, like
0: weekend break. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And
2: the, I was, was,
0: so it was it was an extraordinary moment, uh, and we didn't even mention encore by Cheryl Lynn, which is probably you uh, know yeah. one of. One of their very greatest records. Tell, tell us, I mean, you we you mentioned the new Jam and Lewis right. record before we started recording. Lots of, it, it, dare we dare we ask, is it any good? Yeah, yeah it's lovely, lo- and it's interesting. They're revisiting. You know, I love the record they made with Face.
1: It was a single, yeah. Baby Face. There's a there's a very funny Morris Day and Jerome record, um, and I would like to, There's you know, there's a really good Mary J. Blige record on there. There's a really good. Uh, I think it's Johnny Gill. I'm thinking, I think it's Jenny Gill. I yeah, mean, they went back and choice. revisited a lot of their people they work with, yeah, but yeah. also they work with Karen White, which they
2: hadn't really done much with. I just think that... Um, well, they divorced, didn't they? I mean, I, th- I think that their marriage, Karen White... Oh, no, I'm not Karen White. I I'm, I'm, My bad. Oh. I'm not thinking... I'm
1: thinking... Uh, Tony Braxton. <laughs> okay,
0: Tony <yeah>. Braxton,
2: <laughs> 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 uh,
1: yeah. Sorry about that.
0: Yeah, been, yeah. But yeah, you Yeah, know, she's definitely I, on the record.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I just think that there was a... I love... And again, it's one of those records where all the songs seem written for the artist. They don't seem like generic songs they put together. They seem like, okay, I work is married, this is what I write about." Mm-hmm. so I really, I really enjoyed it. I mean I, I think that I have a theory that you know great talents don't the talent doesn't disappear the mar- The marketplace shifts how yeah. we hear them. Mm-hmm. and I think that these songs are still i mean I was happy to see well-crafted songwriting. I'm just like, yes, yeah. I think the biggest difference, you know, we talk about the difference in blues, it's, it's not the artist, it's the songwriting. Yeah. And what's considered a song. And I mean, I had a, I had a meeting with a young songwriter. Uh, I was sitting with them in some place.
2: They don't even, you know, think about writing bridges. Ha! <laughs> ah, you just beat me to it. My, my, my beef with DiAngelo is he never writes the bridge. He never writes the middle eight. Basically, the song starts, and I, I mean, I, lo- I like his voice. I like the sound of his records nothing modulates there's no modulation it just goes along you know it's... and that's also that's the hip-hop influence yeah because you tend to make a loop yeah and i this young songwriter
1: i said well you know the only space i leave on the record i leave a space for the rapper to come in, in case i want to put a rap you know
0: <laughs> over the bridge <laughs> that's the middle eight that's yeah. the middle eight <laughs> yeah. so so yeah.
1: that and 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 what's missing you know as you guys well know is the drama because mm. when you come out mm. of that bridge back into the chorus then you have you, know, you have this kind of sense of return that, that often pushes the singer to sing a, to another level. And when everything's like this, a loop, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, And D'Angelo would admit, I think that especially his first two albums were very much you know, hip hop influence. He was doing that yeah. boom mm. kind of records, yeah, 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 especially the first one, I
3: yeah. think. But I think there's also an element of it where there's the saturation side of things. There's so much music now, and the, the received wisdom is that you just need to hammer your listener with as many choruses yes. as you can physically fit in like three and a half minutes, yeah, in order for it to stick in their mind, and then they'll then they'll keep listening to yeah. it. But you know, and there's uh, just so much around that you it, you kind of people feel like they have to do that, and, or and, you know, and, so there's no room, and then, then they're, they're like, mi- then they're mixed
2: yeah. and mastered to be as loud as possible, so there's absolutely no dynamics in terms of volume in the track so you know it's just well that's
1: your European it's your European fault man you, you, you fucking with the stockholm guys
2: <laughs> well, Absolutely. Oh, Max, Max
3: what's his face <laughs> uh, yeah Max Martin Max Martin.
1: it's, it's yeah. those damn sweets man <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think that probably brings us to the just bit of the show, Mark, where you talk about some of the highlights going into the Rock's Pages library over the last couple of weeks.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Last week, Pete Towns interviewed by Nick Jones, Melody Maker, in 1966. He says, now we've rehearsed carefully. We're singing in harmony and unison. and There is a kind of orderly disorder which I think is a pretty good description of The Who all round, actually. Um, I, um, very nice to get a review of um, from 68 from d- Uncredited Disc of Music Echo of uh, The Bird's Sweetheart of the Rodeo, which is you know, a really important record in all kinds of ways. And they love it. They said, The Bird's Sweetheart of the Rodeo LP shows how wise this great group were to switch completely to the style of music they love and know. They bring to country and western the same full big sound they gave rock and there's some lovely instrumental highlights in such songs as 100 Years From Now, You Ain't Going Nowhere, You're Still In My Mind and Nothing Was Delivered. A stylish album. And William Bell's You Don't Miss Your Water. Ah! I think, I think. You may well be right. That's Graham's soul
0: kind of nod. <laughs> nod to soul me. <laughs>
2: You don't miss 1970s San Francisco Xander, Philip Elwood, a writer who I've really enjoyed posting the stuff on the site. He saw Miles Davis, Bitches Brew Band, at the Both And in San Francisco. Uh, You know, what a great band to see for a start, you know. This is the current in-person Davis group plays long concert sets, almost an hour, like the LP cuts. They don't really begin or end. What a listener gets is a big slice of musical life. It seems disarmingly simple from distance. He actually, the music is, an active, is as active as a blob of liquid under a microscope. <laughs> I, I really like that. This yeah. next piece this is uh, kind of hasn't got much to do with pop as such. It's from Rolling Stone. It's Robert Greenfield interviewing Jermaine Greer in London. It's uh, 1971. <laughs> and she says, They won't let me fuck my friends in the Algonquin. They'll never get past a desk. I'm going to the Chelsea. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> yeah, so that was Jermaine Greer. Richard Lloyd from television to Richard Grable, Enemies 1985, um, talking about what happened after television, which was basically I took an awful lot of drugs. There is a palpable evil in heroin. It steals you, it takes away your ambition, it rips you off, which kind of explains why he sort of vanished for quite quite a long time. Oh, this is is great. Uh, David Sinclair in The Times in April 1990, reviewing Public Enemy's Fear of a Black Planet. He says, Fear of Black Planet comes well supplied with stickers. Warning, certain lyrics may offend. Play with caution but i'm glad to find that the album's dynamism puts it in a different league to the ponderously rebarbative doggerel of nwa i like the ponderously rebarbative doggerel of nwa <laughs> can you
0: be ponderously
2: rebarbative, i
0: wonder
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean, you, you, you like public enemy oh, thing, yeah, nelson yeah absolutely yeah you? i remember the first time the first thing i heard i think was don't believe the hype and it scared the shit out of me. I really, you know, i a bit like when I first heard Jimi Hendrix for like three months. I just hated it. And then suddenly a light bulb came on. You know, this is absolutely brilliant, brilliant music, you know. I got a good story with them, actually.
1: Uh, I don't know if you have time, but yeah, sure. First time I heard the Takes Nation of Millions, I was at Jam Master J's apartment. In, oh, really? <laughs> and the Tough It and Leather album. So, so, so he was playing me the new Run DMC album, which mm-hmm. was Run's House which I liked, it was okay. And then he played The Nation of Millions, which he'd just gotten. And I did my best not to try and let him let on. The fact is that he just got crushed. <laughs> and that this Public Enemy record was so amazing. So I'm sitting <laughs> this guy's apartment like, yeah, man, your record's really great. Uh, oh, that Public Enemy's okay too. No way, like this is fucking, amazing. so that was one yeah. of those really weird moments when you're in an yeah. you know, pre- art, you don't really want to diss, but you don't, you're in the presence of superior art. And yes. you're trying your best not to let it... But I think he already knew when he listened to it. Like, oh, yeah. shit, I'm Yeah.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's, that's a cool. great story. Don't,
4: don't, don't believe the hype. Don't
0: believe the hype, it's a sequel. As an equal, can I get this through to you? My 98 booming with a trunk of funk. All the jealous punk can't stop the dunk.
2: Coming from the school of hard knocks. This week, Lee Dorsey, uh, to David Griffith's Record Mirror, 1966, he says, to tell you the truth, I've never even seen a coal mine, though I'm hoping to see one on this tour of Britain. <laughs> I love the idea. So I posted this on Facebook, and a friend of mine said, you know, but I bet he never rode a pony too. And another friend of mine said, he could solve the whole thing by riding a pit pony. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, great. I, I, it's a very interesting interview because it's also with Marshall Seahorn, who's his manager, was on, on the tour with him. 1972, Norm Jopling reviewing Michael Jackson's Got to Be There for Record Mirror. He says, Let's hope he doesn't go the same way as Frankie Lyman, or that Tamler do not stretch his tinny but exquisite voice too much, because this lad could easily be the greatest soul singer of them all, but not for hmm. a long time yet. Hmm. Uh, not for a long time yet. Barney, this is a scene we, we both went to before we'd actually met each other, which was Dan, Penn, Alan Toussaint, Guy Clark, Joe South and Vic Chestnut, the Southern Songwriters Circle, at Queen Elizabeth Hall in 1994, reviewed by Paul Sexton for The Times. He says, Penn unlocked Dark End of the Street, I'm your puppet and do right woman, do right man. Joe South offered theme tunes such as Games People Play, Hush and Rose Garden, but consistently most affecting was Toussaint's beautiful lyrical touch on his Southern Nights and Freedom for the Stanleyan. That was a good evening wasn't it Barney? Hmm. It was it was uh, it was
0: like a one night only thing wasn't it you know yeah, yeah. I mean, you're never going to get that collection of people together on a on a s- stage at the same time again. It was organised by Charlie Gillett he was kind of like oh, the, yeah, wow. the compere wasn't he? Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. That's right. No, it was it was pretty great. It wasn't I mean it wasn't all sort of sort of no. spellbinding music but but two tu- saint T- 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 was absolutely, oh, you know... Fabulous. Absolutely just
2: fabulous. fab, wasn't it? Fabulous. Yeah. Last thing, uh, Swade's Brett to John Harris, Enemy in 95. The band are in some sort of, you know, the, things aren't going great for them. And, and also the stories around Brett taking a lot of drugs and so on and so forth. He says, the end of year polls are like school sports day and all the journalists like teachers. It's true. It is. It's like being fucking 11 again. I don't know I've fucking escaped all that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard any pop star say that the end of year polls is
2: like school
0: sports day before. <laughs> I mean, I sort of get it, but it's just bizarre
2: thing to say. <laughs> oh, dear. Anyway, that's my lot. How, how about you guys? I'm just
0: going to mention one thing in the interest of time, which is a long Vanity Fair piece by the excellent Sheila Weller, who wrote The the great book, Girls Like Us, it's, it's just it's a revisiting of everything that happened in and around Haight-Ashbury in, you know, 66, 67. And she talks uh, not just to, like, country Joe McDonald, but to, like, the, the poster artists like Mouse and Kelly and so forth. So it's a really in-depth retrospective piece on The Summer of Love. Jasper, how about you?
3: I just want to mention two things. First of which is a Mal Peachy piece for The Independent in June 2004. Squeaks and Skronks, Eric Dolphy's Out to Lunch, which is oh. on the occasion of the 40th anniversary reissue of that. Blue Note put that out again. It's such and a it's great really, record. It's a, f- a fantastic record. And it's a great piece, very funny piece, because Mal Peachy actually goes onto the Blue Note website where a bunch of people have been leaving reviews. And he quotes some of them most of which seem to not understand Out to Lunch one bit. Another American, Richard Everett, writes, This CD is without structure, form, rhyme or reason and without merit. The title track drives me crazy to listen to it. And he should know because, as he states, I'm a musician and I can guarantee you that this is not music. This (laughs) compact disc is to music as a dead frog is to the Miss America Beauty pageant. (laughs) It's just so funny. But obviously, Mal rebuts this and quotes another review that said, there's nothing artsy or pretentious about this album. It's pure mmm. If you don't like to be challenged by music, then don't buy this album and don't listen to jazz. And Mal then says, if you do want to listen to jazz, buy out to lunch and prepare yourself. At one minute, 30 seconds of track one, hat and beard, everything starts to happen. For the next two minutes, Dolphys solo displays the absolute beauty and fury of acoustic jazz at its most free. Time stutters and dissonance chimes. Eric Dolphy died 40 years ago on Tuesday. It's a really nice piece and what a record.
2: Oh, I, I just adore that record. I and mean, there's all kinds of stuff about it. So the least interesting musician on it is Freddie Hubbard, who is the straightest musician. He's playing the nearest to kind of standard jazz trumpets and stuff. Eric Dolphy on bass clarinet, which is, I think, such a beautiful instrument, after you've had tenor saxophones blasting at you for years, just to hear a bass clarinet is wonderful. And it's even got a great cover. Yeah. I mean, it's everything about it. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> the other piece is actually a, a review and interview with Run the Jewels,
3: a bit of Run the Jewels 3, which is a, a really interesting very political album and it was kind of like the first sort of big hip-hop album to come out after Trump was elected in 2016 and so this is Stephen Dalton writing for Uncut in March 2017 and he asks will the Trump era change the way musicians behave (laughs) and gets the answer fuck if I know but me and Mike didn't write this LP in response to Trump per se our souls come and go but the imbalance of power and abuse of the meek stays we're going to continue to say and feel exactly what we please while smoking potentially dangerous amounts of weed (laughs) I mean, it's, I mean, it's a great record. If you haven't listened to it, <laughs> Run the Jewels 3 is a, is a really powerful political record. And uh, I just wanted to mention that.
0: Cool. Well, that brings us to the end of the episode. And Mark, can you just talk us out with the third and final clip from Terry yeah, Lewis? Yeah, sure.
2: It's basically about how Terry Lewis talking about how they don't want to work with Lionel Richie. They don't want to work with Michael Jackson. How- much they admire those people, they're always interested in working with someone who's on the way up, he's got something new to offer. It's, it's good stuff. You guys will be back in two weeks with the infamous,
0: adorable Dr. Jennifer Otter talking, <laughs> I hope, about Nico and possibly Jackson Brown and other things. I will be away, yeah. I will leave her in your capable hands and you in her capable hands. But until then like to thank nelson george very much for joining us and track down his mixtape volume one collection of early pieces and rejection letters hey guys thank you for having me
1: on i really appreciate it it was great bye we've
4: worked with axe start to finish, people who've never sold any records, people who've sold a lot of records, and been offered people who sell mega records. But we don't, if we don't feel we can bring something to the party, you know, some party flavor, some hats, some graffiti or something, some confetti, <laughs> anything, You know, put some stuff on the wall, if we can't put our stamp on it and help to enhance, then we don't even take it. So those being been people you've been offered who are like pre-packaged? Oh, well, we've been offered like, uh, we've got calls from Lionel Richie, Michael Jackson, you know, Whitney, I mean, right. I mean, anybody you could probably think of, Right. you know, but it, it's not that it's not appealing and that we don't love these people, we love their work, mm-hmm. but that's exactly why we won't touch it. Right.
3: That was Terry Lewis in conversation with Stephen Daly in 1992, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to our special guest, Nelson George. Visit his website at nelsongeorge.net. The hosts are Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com.